Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have with us today Jim Kerrigan. He is principal at North American Data Centers, a data center real estate brokerage. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. To those who haven't uh, bought or sold data center space in the U.S., but pay attention to what's happening in the market, Jim may be best known for his annual newsletter, which uh, sort of spills the beans on all the big recent lease transactions. Um, companies typically try to keep tight control on this kind of information, such as you know who Microsoft leased a gazillion megawatts from in Chicago this year, or who's getting all the ByteDance TikTok business as they expand, and so on. So, um, Jim, uh, maybe first tell us how do you get that information, and how do you decide which deals get included in the newsletter? Yeah, so um, like all things, it's it's relationships and having the right relationships with the right people that know what's going on um you know and you know it's it's day-to-day knowing who, who to talk to who to call and you know oftentimes it might be someone that may have lost a transaction to somebody else maybe it's it comes from um one of my clients that's looking for space in the same property and i find out that somebody else is taking the space so it's it's various resources as i always say though i, I don't ever put my own transactions in there so if you if you don't want to be in my newsletter you hire me so you used to be an analyst, right? You used to be a market analyst, and you, you have, uh, it's not just rumors that um, those deals aren't just rumors, right? You, you have some kind of a verification process. Yeah, I try to make sure, you know, I, I try to go and vet it through a couple different sources. And, you know, most of the time I get it right, but occasionally I get a couple things wrong. And it's, it's, it's not an exact science. I always tell people it's probably about 75%, or sorry, it's probably about 95% accurate and the other 5%, I don't know if anyone's going to figure out that, that portion because it's just too hard. There's too many disinformation out there. And oftentimes, if I hear that a TikTok or a ByteDance is taking down 25 megawatts, I don't know what that is, if that's the initial takedown or if that's the total takedown with incremental uh, free rent prior to that. What can you tell us about ByteDance, the company behind TikTok as a data center buyer in the U.S.? Looks like they leased a lot of capacity last year. Yeah, so ByteDance took uh, roughly 150 or 125 megawatts, and that was split with three different landlords, Align, Digital, um, oh, actually it was Digital, two different locations. And um, they had taken space in 2019 with digital as well, but it was a lot smaller, it was about nine megawatts. Let's rewind, uh, tell us, how did you get into data center brokerage? You used to be into in uh, office real estate. Right? Correct, so I used to be an office broker, and then in, I think it was 1997 or 98, uh, we had an opportunity with my old company to help um, a company looking for a telco hotel, I think is what the term was back then. And the company was Frontier Communications, 
And I was based in Chicago. And at that point in time, there were a couple different properties that were trying to to become a data center hotel. And you know, the first transaction I did was a uh, 70,000 square foot transaction at 350 Cermak. And ultimately it was the anchor lease for the property, which is now considered one of the most famous addresses in the world. And 350 so is, was, sorry, I just want to clarify, 350 East Cermak is in Chicago, right? That's a big Gary Hotel. Correct, right? yeah, it's probably the biggest data center in the world, I think, and it's uh, now owned by Digital Realty Trust. That Back then it was being developed by a group out of Washington, D.C. And so it was uh, the anchor tenant. And I learned at that point in time, I really didn't understand um, the power requirements or the fiber requirements. And frankly, I didn't even know what fiber was because it was kind of early on and trying to understand all that stuff. That was your first data center transaction. Um, how did you eventually decide that you're going to, this is what you're going to focus on this part of the real estate market. Yeah, what I liked about it is that, you know, as a broker, we were always paid on the size of the transaction. And this was a transaction that, you know, ostensibly came out of nowhere and was done very quickly. And it was, you know, the thrill of, okay, you don't have to deal with, okay, office, uh, office transactions were all based on the number of people that were going to be in that space. Here's something that had nothing to do with the headcount. And it had entirely to do with, you know, changing um, technology. Were you thinking like the technology industry is growing? This is kind of the future, so this is what I should focus on. Yeah. So up until then, I had been focused on uh, more software companies and their growth, and I just thought that was you know based on everything else I was seeing, I thought that was a great technology. This seemed like the the next great thing, um, and particularly related to to uh, you know technology and what, what it was going to need and the buildings it was going to have. And I knew I had kind of a unique requirement. And I did try for a couple years until 2001 hit. And then in 2001, when the telco um, market crashed, I, I made a, a pact to myself that I'd never do another data center transaction. And lo and behold, now I have a company that's all it does. And so then you've, you've spent years running data center practices at some of the largest real estate companies, Avison Young, Robin Ellis. Why did you eventually decide to start your own North American data centers? It, it really was to give me the flexibility to be able to work in multiple markets. Um, the challenge with data center transactions is that um, it's... We look at different markets for our clients and that sometimes Chicago might be the right place for them and sometimes Dallas was going to be the right place. And without having the ability to be able to do transactions in multiple markets or being uh, beholden to someone within my company that might not know a market, it was a lot easier to be able to go out there and be able to, to say, okay, well, if I'm going to go into Dallas, I want to look at this property here. If I'm going to look at in, in San Francisco, this makes the most sense. And it just really was trying to deliver best-in-class services in multiple markets. And I didn't see that uh, ability with a large large uh, real estate firm. And was it a matter of the large real estate firm has a, a certain strategy and that strategy doesn't always gel well with what's best for the customers? Yeah, sometimes, because sometimes it's based on zip code. So if you're in suburban Chicago and you're a downtown Chicago real estate broker, you have to find a guy that's a, an expert in that market. And so... That doesn't always work because within the data center space, there's only a handful of real estate brokers that really know um, the data center within their market, and they might not necessarily be within your firm. It may be with a, a different firm. So this ability, it, it, being on my own, gives me the ability to team up as needed 
with with folks that have the expertise that can help my clients. So on every data center REITs earnings call last year, analysts asked about Northern Virginia. You know, it's the largest market in North America, probably still the largest in the world. Um, the analysts were concerned with oversupply there, with everybody building like crazy. Um, what's the state of play in Northern Virginia today? Um, so, you know, at the beginning of the year, it, it may have been uh, oversupplied. Um, and the rental rates that they were uh, asking for the customers, the ones, the transactions that got done there with Microsoft and ByteDance, they're all very aggressive transactions. And that absorbed a lot of the space. So currently, um, there, there's a couple hundred megawatts under construction there now. But I'm pretty sure that some of it's already been spoken for by some of the bigger customers. So I, I feel like there's a pretty good supply uh, demand balance there now. Um, but you know that that remains to be seen. If, if it has another monster year like like last year uh, in Northern Virginia, then then they're going to have some issues there with with not having enough supply. So it still tends to be the go-to for a lot of the bigger customers. Um, last year in our, our report, we reported that roughly 500 megawatts of the 700 megawatts that was leased last year was done in Northern Virginia. Can you explain a little bit more about those? Um, you said you said Microsoft and ByteDance did aggressive transactions there. What does that mean? They were aggressive in terms of pricing? Yeah, in terms of pricing, the rental rates were very low. And, um, you know, that's always one of those things that, you know, what is the right number? Um, it's a lot easier with office space to be able to say, okay, that's a class A building, that's a class B building, here's what was leased there. And and oftentimes people get confused with what a net versus a gross rental rate is and whether PUE is part of it or not part of it. There's all sorts of different factors that we look at, but um, the, 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 the rental rates at the beginning of last year were very aggressive and then it, it, it uh, kind of, the pendulum swung back um, toward the end of the year and went back to kind of where it was maybe in 2019. So um, yeah, and every year there's different challenges with, with leasing and renewals and everything like that. Um, but that's that's how we saw it last year. Mm -hmm. And and so those those aggressive rates, um, I think, were part of the challenge that market um, that all the kind of analysts were concerned with too, right? I've heard even some complaints about, oh, you know, these companies are somebody's leasing capacity at low rates, kind of undermining everybody in the market. That's uh, always a concern in any sort of business, right? But it's also what's your basis if you're the landlord? What's your basis in the land? And what's your construction costs, and what are you building yeah, to? So not not everybody can can you know make those transactions pencil out, but some can. Well, I'm just saying that there's all sorts of different restaurants, and not everyone's gonna eat at McDonald's every day. And there's there's different customers that are gonna have different different sort of needs, and as such, the data centers are also have different sort of construction. Yeah, if you look at the the 10Ks for for most of the publicly traded companies, they're all demonstrating a different price point of what the construction costs are, and some put it on a price per square foot, some put it on a per megawatt, but you know, you can look at some of those and the on a price per megawatt, the incremental megawatt might be anywhere from five megawatts to or sorry, five million a megawatt to eight or nine million a megawatt. And at one point in time it was closer to ten. So that's why I'm saying that everyone does what they have to do to get their deal done. Whether the analysts are concerned or not is of no concern to either the companies that are leasing space or the tenants themselves, because 
will do it for where they, they think they can best uh, make the market. Okay, now that we've gotten Northern Virginia out of the way, um, how are you seeing things playing out in the quote-unquote emerging markets around the U.S.? Do you see a lot of growth outside of the top markets? I know you mentioned Northern Virginia had a huge year. No, year. I mean, I think it's it's been pretty quiet um, last year. If, you, if, if we're talking about, you know, 500 of the 700 being in one market, then there's only 200 to spread out over the rest of the country. And that seemed to occur in a, a, a couple markets. Chicago was probably the number one behind Virginia. Um, and then Phoenix was another market that was really uh, strong as well. And I had even heard recently that some of what I reported was, I, I missed one of the Microsoft deals that went to Edgecore in Phoenix. So then we saw some activity in, uh, in, in Northern California, and we saw a little bit of activity in, in, uh, in Nevada as well. Um, so those are kind of some new markets, as you're saying, emerging, and, and then a little bit Northwest. Um, the one market that, that still hasn't really captured, from a leasing perspective, um, any sort of major hyperscale tenants is Dallas. And so that's been, uh, been an obvious one where Dallas and Chicago – and even to some degree, Virginia would it would they would they would um, take over the second and the third spots. But you know, when Virginia not that long ago, three four years ago, where they weren't leading the market, it was usually Dallas or Chicago. And Dallas has just not been as strong the last three or four years. And part of that is the hyperscales that have that have done Dallas have actually done that um, either captured something on their own, like a Facebook did in Fort Worth or uh, they're not leasing there for whatever reason. And the tier two markets are often positioned as edge markets. Uh, how much of that is true? Are there a lot of companies leasing space in tier two markets to specifically to reduce latency for users in those metros and cut their own data transport costs? Or is this more of, you know, they're just, it's just call though for, for markets that are underserved. Yeah, I think um, the tier two markets have, have, you know, for the last several years, and let's talk about tier two. What, what does that mean? Because it means something different to everyone else, but then, then for me, so, so I would say like an Indianapolis or a Columbus or a Kansas City or a Pittsburgh, I, I think those are tier two markets. Um, you know, occasionally we'll see um, it being an edge market, but oftentimes I think what we're doing is we're seeing hospitals and local uh, companies that are more likely to use that for what they, they need it for. Um, you know, a good example of, a, of, a, of an edge sort of platform was Edge Connects, which got sold last year. And, you know, they were really catering to just a couple of different tenants for the for the edge markets. And that started with the, the telecommunication companies or cable companies, I should say, um, you know, Charter communications and, and comcast those are really what was driving the edge and then the, the follow-up were the companies that would once they did the anchor transaction then we'd see a an apple or, or a netflix or another group like that come in there but none of these properties were were huge and the absorption after the initial couple of tenants when there hasn't been huge so you know a lot of um what we think about the edge and someone explained it to me recently you know pretty well it was one of the smart guys in, in our space he explained to me, hey, Jim, think about how long we've had video conferencing. You know, it's been around since 1999, but it wasn't until 2020 where we really saw the, you know, that really explode. And he's saying the same thing that that's going to happen to Edge is that, you know, we may, it may take some while for us to see that and the, the impact of that. 
but that it's still coming because I keep on going to these conferences and, you know, there was the Gardner conference in 2019 at, at the end of the year. And there's said, Oh, 2020 will be the year of the edge. I'm like, well, I've been doing edge transactions for the last seven years now. Why is it all of a sudden, you know, become new? So, um, you know, last year when you think of edge is this edge, I could argue edges, uh, Chicago. And I've argued this before years ago, I argued it when, when uh, Microsoft did a big transaction out in suburban Chicago, I said, and they did it with Edge Connects, ironically, but I said, well, that's really an Edge transaction. Everyone said, well, how could that be? And I said, well, they're, they're going after Office 365 users, and that application happens to be, you know, for the 9 million population of the greater Chicago area. I said, similarly, if you look at um, gaming last year, that was truly an Edge sort of platform, right? And so we saw some of the gamers do transactions around the, around the country and not all of them made the newsletter because a lot of them were under the two megawatt cutoff that we kind of use for the newsletter. Um, but we saw PlayStation do a couple megs in Chicago. I would consider that an edge transaction because they're trying to get the gamers to have the latency so they can play each other uh, on a competitive. Right. Platform. So you can look at it as you can look at edge as being a place where you don't have core, so to speak. So, you know, if you don't have infrastructure in, if you have infrastructure in market A and then you need to reach users in market B, then, you know, you build some infrastructure in market B and that becomes the edge. You mentioned gaming. Um, so there, there were a lot of obviously announcements of cloud gaming recently that did drive some leasing, some data center leasing around the country. Yeah, it wasn't substantial. Uh, gaming typically ends up being pretty small. Usually gaming's 500 or meg, meg and a half. The deal I uh, talked about in Chicago was two. And I remember a few years ago, there was somebody had something new out and that was, you know, they had a multi-market sort of transaction because they had a new platform that they were introducing. And I can't, the name escapes me for, for now, but there are a lot of things that were driving work that besides remote, besides gaming, there was remote work, there was social media, there was e-commerce and video streaming. So all of that drove leasing activity, but it's not always transparent when we see a, someone like a Microsoft take down space because we don't know if that that transactions for for you know Bing or if that's for Xbox or if that's for for Office three sixty five or, or or whatever. They've got so many different platforms there that have data center needs, and that's why it becomes less transparent when we see companies like that do yeah, transactions. They just, they just call it all cloud. So you mentioned the Edge Connects build out when they were you know building data centers all over the country for primarily as you mentioned for these. Communications companies, I think Comcast was building it, building it out for their cloud DVR product, uh, and they went into all the tier two markets, um, and they were built as multi-tenant data centers. I know you mentioned a few tenants that uh, leased some of that space in, in addition to the anchors. Um, I think you mentioned Apple and Netflix. In general, have those facilities been filling up with tenants other than the anchor? The anchor has continued to expand in some of those properties, but then um, I, I don't know how full they are, but once again, these properties, and I've been through many of the Edge Connects facilities, were, were much smaller properties in general. They might be 35,000 square feet or 60,000 square feet, and which are relatively small in the magnitude of what the larger uh, data center um, broker or developers are building. So um, I'm not up to speed exactly on how much space is available and, and what's going on with those sort of properties. Um, so and I, I can't speak has, to that. has moved on also. I'm not moved on. They, I don't think they've moved away from the edge model, but they're building 
they've been building hyperscale facilities, right? In, in, and not just in the US, in Europe as well. And Well, they did at one time though. I, I don't know if that's still the case though. And they just sold. Um, so that was probably very consuming for them, but I don't know what their their plan is now. I, I saw something recently, but I, I don't know what, what, what it was, but I, they did, uh, they had three successful deployments that were for Microsoft and one was in Ireland and one was in Amsterdam, I believe. But um, that's all I know about, about what, they're, what they and, did. And in your last newsletter, which just came out recently, uh, you bring up an interesting concept, power reporting. Um, can you explain what it is and why there's more of it happening now? You know, this goes back to my days as an office broker when there was a company called Equity Office Properties. Sam Zell um, was the CEO of that company. And what his whole opinion was, he tried to make it as simple as possible for, for companies to lease space with them. And, he didn't care if you, you leased, you know, 300,000 square feet or, or 30,000 square feet. He wanted you to have the flexibility for you to keep on using the, the EOP model into multiple markets. And so we're seeing that sorry, more what, and more what's, with I'm sorry, developers. What's, what's the EOP model? I'm sorry, equity office properties. So equity office properties was one of the biggest landlords of all time. And they sold, I can't even remember how many years ago. I think they sold to Blackstone 10 years ago, but what it, what it gave my, you know, in the late um, 90s, uh, it gave my clients the ability to, to, to port their office space requirement to different markets. And I'm seeing that more and more now with data center requirements where if I don't have the need for the space in Ashburn, then I can move that to another facility within, you know, a digital realty in Santa Clara or vice versa. And so... It's an interesting concept that that's now the data center REITs are catching up to what the office REITs did in the past. I guess it, it takes some special consideration for them too, right? Because it complicates, I imagine, capacity planning in various markets. Yeah, but I mean, the, the question is, is how do you keep a customer for, you know, as you've talked about before, and I've read in some of your articles, how do you, why does that one customer not go from one provider to the other? If you can create some flexibility in your in your leasing process, then it makes it easier for the, the tenant to accommodate. And you know, maybe it's a gaming company that that says, okay, we've got a lot more demand in certain markets. We really didn't. We, we thought we were going to have a lot more demand in this one market, but we didn't have the kind of gaming demand we had in that market. We can move it somewhere else now. So it creates more flexibility and more benefits to the, to the customer. And, and you focus on wholesale data center leasing, as you mentioned, even for the, for your newsletter, you have the two megawatt cutoff, so deals under two megawatts you don't include in there. Uh, and, and there's two types of wholesale leasing, right? So there are single tenant building leases and multi-tenant ones. Um, how are those transactions different from one another? Well, most of the single tenant uh, transactions are, are really uh, the hyperscale guys who have negotiated that either prior to the building being built or they come in there with uh, the demand of taking down the either the entire space or a commitment some sort of forward commitment to take down the entire space uh, where the multi-tenant data center transactions which is more common than what we see for for most of the landlords those tend to be anywhere from you know 300 kW to four or five megawatts um, you know, we, we have seen some of them that, you know, might be as large as 10 megawatts, but um, most of the multi-tenant data center leasing is going to be at a, probably at a much higher rate than the single tenant properties. Um, the rental rate will be much higher. 
And then with the single tenant properties, you have the ability to, to modify the, the construction. So you might have um, in an, an N design versus an N plus one or a two N design. So whatever that landlord was anticipating that he was going to build, he might be flexible and accommodate a tenant. In a multi-tenant data center environment, you might have hard walls. And now you decide, hey, you don't need that um, because they're taking down the entire facility. We don't need to put a hard wall up. So therefore, we can utilize the space a little bit differently. And uh, we talk a lot about new leases, uh, but a big part of the business is in renewals. How is negotiating renewal data center leases different from new ones? Extremely difficult. It's, it's, it's super hard because it's based on language that could be 10 years old. It could be 15 years old. And I'm talking about the renewal language within your lease document um, might dictate that it's at market. And market um, would be based on certain factors that was important at a period of time that's not the same these days. And so... The challenge is that um, how does the landlord and the tenant get to the right number and um, what does the tenant feel that they need to get things done? They're extremely hard to deal with. Um, 2018 and 2019 were two years where there's a significant amount of renewals that, that were, were being done and had to get done. And um, for the most part, the, the you know, landlord and tenant eventually got to the right number because otherwise those tenants probably wouldn't have renewed. But I've seen I've seen cases where, where both parties just walk away and they kind of are um, they're a tenant that doesn't necessarily have a renewal, but they have a lease in place. Um, and it's challenging. It, it certainly is it's much more challenging in this space than practically any other space, any other real estate space that exists. And, and so. Having done a few of these, what's your advice to a company whose lease is coming up for renewal in the data center? It's got to be one of those things that you have to start early. If your lease is up in a year from now, that's probably not nearly early enough. You really have to probably be out there two years in advance of your lease. And you really have to explore the market and you have to understand how you're utilizing the space. So if you have five or six megawatts and you, you lease that space 10 years ago, um, you're probably utilizing it a lot differently than you once were. And just because you have, you know, let's say five or six megawatts, you might only be utilizing or needing three of that, but that three megawatts may be spread over 40,000 square feet. And there's gotta be a trade-off between the cost of, of, of staying and the cost of moving. And that if you gave back, you know, call it half your load, and then you're able to build that space out much more efficiently in new location, it really gives the uh, you a better understanding of whether or not it makes sense to stay in that location or whether it you know, makes more sense to move. And yeah, I've been involved with a, a number of renewals over the years. And you know, the first renewal I think it did a, of a data center was probably in you know, 2007 or something like that. And that was another difficult one I can remember because the language um, was so difficult it was all based on not necessarily the data center improvements, but it was based on uh, similar buildings in that geographic area. So it had nothing to do with data centers. And I had another renewal where the tenant had um, taken space down from a full floor tenant. So the whole, all the equipment was all chopped up and it, it was just difficult. None of them are easy, um, but there are some landlords that are, are, are good to work with and they're, they, they, they understand the challenges because they're, in the midst of dealing with that as well. So 
it always helps when you have a good partner on the other side. But I'd say for the most part, companies that pursue a strategy like this on their own um, are going to have a tough time going at it. It's better to hire someone like myself or one of my my friendly peer group that to, to help you through that 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 tough process. Landlords must be especially sensitive nowadays because they're competing with cloud providers, right? I bet a lot of a lot of uh, leases that come up for renewal um, just become cloud deals instead of renewal. Yeah, but then there's still the hybrid cloud, right? So then you'll still have someone that says, okay, we're, we still want to have some in, in that particular location. But that's where I'm, I'm, I think I'm describing what it is. And let's say the tenant's two megawatts and wants to offload some of that into the cloud. And now he's down to one megawatt, but the, the suite that he's in was designed for two. And then the landlord says, okay, well, if you want to stay here, I'm going to have to chop this up and you're going to have to share this suite with somebody else. And how that's handled is always the, the, the challenge, right? And it's the challenge for both the tenant, the landlord, and for the other tenants that, that are, are going into that space. Because then you get into more almost a co-location environment than having a private multi-tenant data center suite. Okay, Jim, that's all I have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Have a great day.